It's the 15th of July in the year of our salvation, 2008. This is the Feast of St. Bonaventure in the post-conciliar calendar, and I'm Father John Zolsdorf, Father Z, with another podcast. We welcome as our guests today St. Bonaventure, the seraphic doctor who died in 1274. We'll hear an excerpt from his work De Itinerario Mentis in Deum, which is used in today's Office of Readings in the Liturgia Orarum. I will also interview the one, the only, the pastor of Blackfem, the master of continuity, the Reverend King of Catholic UK bloggers, his hermeneuticalness himself, my good friend Father Timothy Finnegan. Today we'll talk about the implementation of Pope Benedict XVI's Modu Proprio Samorum Pontificum, and then we, re- we also digress into other matters, spiritual and liturgical. Let's get right to work. St. Bonaventure was born in Bagno Reggio, near Viterbo, north of Rome, in Lazio, in 1221, and his baptismal name is Giovanni da Fidanza. Eventually, he became the eighth minister-general of the Franciscan's order, the Order of Friars Minor. A Franciscan was one of the greatest of the medieval thinkers. He was a contemporary of St. Thomas Aquinas, and they both died in the same year, 1274. They were also uh, they also knew each other, and uh, were probably can you imagine what kind of conversations they would have had. Bonaventure helped Pope Gregory X get elected to the See of Peter, and uh, Bonaventure also participated in the Council of Lyon. Now, Bonaventure was eventually named Cardinal. He was Cardinal Bishop of Albano. Albano is in the hills south of Rome, the Castelli Romani. That's where Castel Gondolfo is, the Pope's summer residence. And Bonaventure was canonized in 1482 by Pope Sixtus IV. And in 1588, Pope Sixtus V declared him to be a doctor of the church, and Bonaventure is sometimes called the seraphic doctor, the doctor seraphicus. Now, whereas Thomas Aquinas, his great contemporary, tended to lean more upon his fusion of Aristotle together with his, into his philosophical and theological thought, Bonaventure is rather more Platonizing, even though he also drew on Aristotle. You can find Aristotle in his works, too. He didn't ignore him. Both Aquinas and Bonaventure, however, stand uh, very much in the Augustinian tradition flowing out of late antiquity and the patristic period. Uh, Bonaventure is a strongly mystical author, a very meditative thinker. He strove after an entire surrendering of the mind and will to God, seeking illumination uh, of the intellect by grace. Now, in the following reading from The Journey of the Mind to God, De Itinerario Mentis in Deum, keep your ears tuned to how Bonaventure is open to a negative approach to God. Now, by negative, we're not talking about a hostile view or a bad view of God. Rather, what he's trying to do is know something about God by the things that we cannot see or understand with the intellect. God completely transcends all our ways of categorizing 
and knowing things. He's absolutely transcendent. And so we can seek in a positive way, like a positive theology, to, to make uh, affirmations and statements about God. But there are some things that we simply cannot understand about him. And so we can approach uh, our uh, knowledge of God through what we know, what we can't know about him. And that's called a negative approach. And so Bonaventure uh, we'll use a little code language here. He uses words about, you know, darkness and the desert. Uh, and he's not just talking about an ascetic life of the monastery. In other words, seeking seeking obscurity rather than glory, though that's also built into the text. He's not talking about just the harsh life of the monastery where we would tame our passions and our appetites in, in a very disciplined way, though that is also surely part of what he's talking about. He is a Franciscan, after all. He's a mendicant, uh, a, one of the begging orders, as it were. But he's also talking about getting out of one's head alone in seeking God, trying to know God in ways beyond simple knowledge and the application of reason. Uh, Bonaventure seems very... Uh, interested in uh, light also the you're going to hear words like light and darkness in this little section now he's probably i'm guessing that he's uh very much influenced by saint augustine of hippo's way of spiritualizing light and darkness especially when you look at his uh exegetical works on genesis but okay i'm getting a little off track here uh, i want you also to keep your ear tuned to the way he talks about mystery. So let's dig right in. We're going to hear the Latin and then the English of a section of chapter 7 of De Itinerarium, Itinerarium Mentis in Deo, the Journey of the Mind to God by St. Bonaventure. Christ is both the way and the door. Christ is the staircase and the vehicle, like the throne of mercy over the Ark of the Covenant and the mystery hidden from the ages. A man should turn his full attention to this throne of mercy and should gaze at him hanging on the cross, full of faith, hope, and charity, devoted full of wonder and joy, marked by gratitude, and open to praise and jubilation. Then such a man will make with Christ a pasch, that is, a passing over. Through the branches of the cross he will pass over the Red Sea, leaving Egypt and entering the desert. There he will taste the hidden manna, and rest with Christ in the sepulchre, as if he were dead to things outside. He will experience, as much as is possible for one who is still living, what was promised to the thief who hung beside Christ, Today you will be with me in paradise. For this Passover to be perfect, we must suspend all the operations of the mind, and we must transform the peak of our affections, directing them to God alone. This is a sacred, mystical experience. It cannot be comprehended by anyone unless he surrenders himself to it, nor can he surrender himself to it unless he longs for it, nor can he long for it unless the Holy Spirit, whom Christ sent into the world, should come and inflame his innermost soul. Hence the Apostle says that this mystical wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit. If you ask how such things can occur, seek the answer in God's grace, not in doctrine, in the longing of the will, not in the understanding, in the size of prayer, not in research. Seek the bridegroom, not the teacher, God and not man, darkness and not daylight, and look not to the light, but rather to the raging fire that carries the soul to God with intense fervor and glowing love. The fire is God, 
and the furnace is in Jerusalem, fired by Christ in the ardor of his loving passion. Only he understood this who said, My soul chose hanging, and my bones death. Anyone who cherishes this kind of death can see God, for it is certainly true that no man can look upon me and live. Let us die, then, and enter into the darkness, silencing our anxieties, our passions, and all the fantasies of our imagination. Let us pass over with the crucified Christ from this world to the Father, so that when the Father has shown himself to us, we can say with Philip, It is enough. We may hear with Paul, My grace is enough for you. And we can rejoice with David, saying, My flesh and my heart fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my heritage forever. Blessed be the Lord forever, and let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Ex opusculo sancti bonaventure episcopi de itinerario mentis in Deum. Christus est via et ostium. Christus est scala et veiculum tamquam propitiatorium superarcam dei collocatum et sacramentum a seculis absconditum. Ad quod propitiatorium qui aspicit plena conversione vultus, Aspiciendo eum in cruce suspensum, perfidem, spemicaritatem, devotionem, admirationem, exultationem, apreciationem, laudem et jubilationem. Pasca, hoc est transitum, cum eo facit, ut per virgam crucis transeat mare rubrum, ab Egipto intrans desertum, ubi gustat manna absconditum, et cum Christo requiescat in tumulo quasi interius mortuus, sentiens tamen quantum possibile est secundum statum vie, quod in cruce dictum est latroni coherenti Christo, hodie mecum eris in paradiso. In hoc autem transitu, si sit perfectus, Oportet quod relinquantur omnes intellectuales operationes, et apex affectus totus transferatur, et transformetur in Deum. Hocautem est mysticum et secretissimum, quod nemo novit, nisiqui accipit, nec accipit nisiqui desiderat, nec desiderat nisiquem ignis spiritus sancti medullitus inflamat, quem Christus misit in terram. Et ideo, dicit apostolus, hanc mysticam sapientiam esse per spiritum sanctum revelatam. Si autem queras quomoro hec fiant, interroga gratiam, non doctrinam, desiderium, non intellectum, gemitum orationis, non studium lectionis, sponsum, non magistrum, deum, non hominem, caliginem, non claritatem, non lucem, sed iniem totaliter inflamantem, et in deum excessivis unctionibus, et ardentissimis affectionibus transferentem. Quiquidem ignis Deus est, et hic caminus est in Jerusalem, et Christus hunc accendit in fervore sue ardentissime passionis, quem solus ille vere percipit, qui dicit, suspendium elegit anima mea, et mortem ossa mea. Quam mortem qui diligit, videre potest Deum, quia indubitanter verum est, Non videbit me homo et vivet. Moriamur igitur, et ingrediamur in caliginem. Imponamus silentium solicitudinibus, concupiscentiis, et phantasmatibus. 
transeamus cum Christo crucifixo ex hoc mundo ad patrem, ut, ostenso nobis patre, dicamus cum Filippo sufficit nobis, audiamus cum Paulo sufficit tibi gratia mea, exultemus cum David dicentes, deficit caro mea et cor meum, Deus cordis mei et pars mea Deus in eternum, benedictus Dominus in eternum, et dicat omnis populus fiat, fiat. Let's turn now to the interview with my good friend, Father Tim Finnegan. He has some great insights for us on the use of the older form of Mass in a parish. And this interview was conducted on the 14th of July, 2008, using a voice-over Internet service called Skype. Today we're talking with Father Timothy Finnegan who's pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Parish in Blackfen. That's in the Archdiocese of Southwark, south of London. Father Finnegan, I'm glad you were able to be interviewed today. Thanks. Well, it's good to see you. Um, uh, Father is probably the best-known Catholic blogger in England, and he teaches... You teach down at Wanish Seminary, is that right? Yes, that's right, yes. St. John's Seminary, the major seminary for the Archdiocese of Southwark, also for Arrington, Brighton, and Portsmouth, and a number of students from other dioceses. I teach um, sacramental theology there. Yeah, how many students are there? Well, they've got about 35 at the moment. Um, I'm not sure how, what the numbers are next year. I know that our vocations director, Father Stephen Langridge for Southwark, has, I think he's got eight students starting in various places, but not all at Wanish. Uh, Father, you've been celebrating the older form of Mass at your parish for quite a while now, even before the yes. motu proprio, right? Indeed, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, so we've, um, we've had the, the older form of the Mass here for, for some time. After the motu proprio, we felt a little freer to celebrate the Mass more regularly. Well, are you doing anything differently then as far as the scheduling is concerned now that the motu proprio is out? Is it, is it more often? Well, on Saturday morning, we used to have an old uh, a Mass in Latin in the new rite. Once the motu proprio was issued, we, we changed that to the old rite. And I have two young altar servers, two, two lads, who learned up the responses. So that's a very popular Mass. Once a month now, that's a Missa Cantata. We have a little choir that comes along to sing for us. So that, that's become very popular. On the Sunday morning, we've moved gradually so that the ceremonial of the Mass now is more or less the old rite, but my choir can't yet sing the all the chants from the gradual. So we still have some vernacular hymns, but the actual ceremonial of the rite is, is the old rite. So people can join in more easily, in fact, because whether they know if they know Latin, they can follow the text in the Missal. If they don't know Latin, well, then they can participate by joining themselves in union with the sacrifice that's offered. Certainly. Now, so do you have both low masses and the Misa Cantata? Yes, in the parish we have both of those. I, I, whenever I say a private mass, it's always in the older form of the rite, and I always advertise it for my people. And we, we have a number of people who come. Sometimes we have what I call the workers and scholars mass. If we have mass at 7 o'clock in the morning, that's a time when people who are going out to work in London or, or wherever or young people who are going off to school can come along and attend Mass. If, if they've got time enough, then we can have a little bit of breakfast afterwards, you know, bacon sandwich and a cup of tea, that kind of thing. So it's an opportunity for people to come to Mass early in the morning rather than mid-morning, as many of the masses, daily Masses now are. Well, it sounds like you're getting a pretty good reaction to this. How have the people in the parish... Uh, taken to integrating the old Mass uh, more frequently into your schedule? Well, to be honest, we've had a, ver a variety of reactions. Not everybody's been happy with it. We've had some people who have said they're so unhappy they're going to go to Mass in, in another parish. I'm a little puzzled by that because, in fact, we have four Sunday Masses, one on Saturday evening, three on Sunday. Three of those Masses are in English. 
So people who like the English Mass and the Novus Ordo, you know, they've got plenty of opportunities for Mass in the parish. But in fact, the surprising thing, surprising to many people, although in fact not so surprising to me because I've thought of this before, the younger families and the children actually quite like the older form of the Mass. That's, that's been one of the features of, of the growth of the old Mass in the parish. So there's a demographic uh, issue here. All there is, yeah. Sometimes the people who grew up and were young adults at the time of Vatican II, you know, 40 years ago, those people sometimes feel a bit angry about the old Mass. They feel that we're going back or something like that. But the younger people, the younger parents, whose children, you know, they, they're very concerned that their children has, should have good morals and, you know, sound um, foundation in the faith, those parents are much more keen on the older form of the Mass, I find. Uh, and very often in the United States, I think, we find uh, families uh, who are homeschooling um, are bringing their children along to the older form of Mass. Do you have the homeschooling phenomenon, or is there a connection with the older form there? Well, homeschooling in England is much less frequent. But in fact, yes, certainly, the homeschooling um, families do tend to be associated with the older form of the Mass. But also, I find in my parish, the families who are following the teaching of the Church for example, concerning humane vitae, the living of family life properly in accord with the teaching of the church, those families tend to be quite open to tradition. But the great phenomenon that I've observed is that some of those families tend to gather to themselves other families too, who see the quality of life that there is in their family. You know, children running around and playing with chickens and climbing up trees and playing table tennis in the garden all those kind of activities that don't involve a television or a computer game or, or whatever, that many families have seen in that a quality of life and have seen also that with their children they can come to a form of a liturgy that, that enriches and feeds that kind of quality of life. That's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the observations that I made on the, on the blog uh, in those rules of engagement that I put for uh, how people should should behave and react after the motu proprio sumorum pontificum came out was to demonstrate joy because uh, when people are are joyful, other people see your happiness, and they who are also searching for happiness would be perhaps attracted to what you have found. You see. Um, perhaps there's a little bit of that. Huh? Other families see uh, that, hey, this is a successful family and and uh, interested in the well-being of their own family. They're attracted to this old form, too. Would you say that's about right? Absolutely, yes. And the, you know, the boys that serve, the girls that sing, the, the children that are around the thing anyway, they are joyful. And there's an atmosphere of, of happiness and exuberance. And some... There's a certain celebration of Pope Benedict's martial plan, as you put it on your blog, that the idea that the liturgy is the tip of the spear, that this is something which will revive the church and revive their families. See, in England at the moment, families are really beleaguered. The government is attacking families. It's more expensive to bring children up in a family than if you live as you know, a, a partnered couple cohabiting. And so for families to, to see something that supports them, to see that the church supports them, that's a very important thing for them. And often they, they find that associated with a more traditional attitude to the church, which is associated not only with the liturgy, but also with the moral teaching of the church and the spiritual teaching of the church. Uh, so um, you see also then the, the, the older form of Mass as having an impact on the family in general, maybe in the in the UK in general? Absolutely. Yes, I think that people who come to the older form of the Mass, they they meet with other families who love the Church, who love the Church's moral teaching, who love Humane Vitae. You know, in England, Humane Vitae has been denigrated in many places, and so it's seen as something that's anti-family or anti-freedom. 
these young families see Humanae Vitae as something glorious, something blessed, and it's associated with the, the older form of the Mass. But here's the Church, happy in its, in its own faith, happy in the, in the celebration of the moral teaching of the Church, happy in all sorts of ways, and the children of those families are happy playing out in the garden and climbing trees and riding on donkeys. Yeah, um, in that case, it, it occurs to me that um, the more priests are doing this in their parishes, uh, the better they could shore up actually the parish life, right? Um, so is there is there any interest? Have you found interest in seminarians? You teach at a seminary. What's going on yes, there? I, yes, I, I teach part-time at the seminary at Wanash, and I know there's a number of the younger seminarians are quite interested in the older form of the Mass. They're not obsessed with it. They're not, um, you, you know, young men who are obsessed with dressing up and that kind of thing. But they want something sacred in the liturgy. And so they're open to the older form of the rite. They're, they're happy to celebrate the new rite, and they go to that, and they, they celebrate that with reverence and so on. But they also want to see the old rite. And when they find a priest like myself, you know, who's happy to celebrate the old rite and to have them as servers, they see that this is something that can enrich their liturgical experience. And so I think many of those younger priests will be open to the older form of the rite, not necessarily as an exclusive thing or something to impose on others, but something that can be offered to the people of the parish. And as Cardinal Hoyos said on his visit to England, something that's for everyone, not just for a small group, not just for people who are enthusiasts about Latin, but for anybody who wants to come to Mass. This, this way of celebrating Mass that's more silent, more contemplative, that has a link with the, with the past, with the tradition of the church. The hermeneutic of continuity is obviously, uh, you know, is something that I'm I'm particularly fond of. In the title of my blog, that Pope Benedict has spoken of things that are sacred and great in the past are sacred and great for us too. Yeah, that's right. Um, exposing the younger people, the people who, you know, we mentioned that demographic thing earlier, that there is a perhaps a split in age uh, uh, over this. I've noticed this among priests, too, that there are uh, priests who are very much, you know, older, maybe approaching even their 80s now, and then a whole bunch of younger guys, and they, they these two groups of priests seem to be on the same page uh, about a more traditional expression of Catholicism. They resonate more with the, the hermeneutic of reform and, and continuity like Pope Benedict talked about. Um, and then there's that middle group, both of priests and of lay people, that sometimes have a, a, a reaction of, of confusion or anger uh, towards those who are interested in integrating back into the life of the Church these older forms of liturgy and uh, perhaps uh, expressions of of the church's teaching that are more in keeping with their tradition, rather than this kind of strange spirit of and hermeneutic of rupture that occurred uh, in so many different spheres of the church. Um, do you, are you involved in any way in uh, in helping seminarians learn or younger priests learn how to say the older form? Well. I think certainly the hermeneutic of rupture is apparent. And I was ordained in 1984, and that's really the watershed year. Priests who were ordained at, at my time or before tend to be opposed to the old mass. Priests who were ordained at my time or after tend to be open to it. My principal contribution in terms of helping um, younger priests to celebrate the mass would be with meeting younger priests, talking to them, talking also about the spirituality, that the asceticism of the of the Tridentine priestly spirituality and you know, the, the, the spirituality of the priesthood after the Council of Trent. I'm also one of the tutors for the Merton Conference, which um, we're having our second conference this this year. Those priests who come to that conference tend to be slightly older. There are several priests from, who are former Anglican priests and who, who've come into the Catholic Church because of various problems with the Anglican Church, and they, they've been received into the Catholic Church and want to find out more about the older rite. What I tend to find is that with the younger clergy, they're able to find out about the old rite and to learn it and 
to find a priest who will teach them. And they're, they're much more proactive in a sense, almost as though they don't need a, a training seminar. But yes, I'm very much involved with helping anybody who wants to learn to celebrate the older rite, to say, well, look, you know, here's a way, and it, it will enrich not only your way of celebrating the new rite, which is what Pope Benedict wanted, but also this will enrich your priesthood. You know, the, the whole thing will will help you in being a good priest and in in celebrating the the priestly life and the priestly character. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, you you seem to be expressing. Um, to me here that there's a difference between the the spirituality that is found in the preconciliar mass are and, and perhaps you're suggesting that there's a somewhat different spirituality about priesthood in the newer form of mass am i understanding it correctly well it's perfectly possible to find a good and sound spirituality for the priesthood in the new mass and no, no question about that i wouldn't deny that at all but I think for many good priests, many good Orthodox priests, if they celebrate the old Mass and learn you know, the prayers, the, the private prayers of the priest, the gestures of the old Mass, it helps them enormously in celebrating the new Mass with great reverence. And at the same time, helps them with understanding the priestly spirituality that lies behind the Mass. I think that what probably happened was that with the new Mass, some priests, who had no experience at all of the tradition of the church, who were brought up in what we could call the hermeneutic of rupture. Everything in the old days was bad, everything since Vatican II is good. Those priests maybe lost something of the great spirituality of the priesthood beforehand. And I think that the, the older form of the Mass is one instrument in helping priests to rediscover that, that great spirituality of the priesthood, which belongs to the whole church and we we can read about in the, in the writings of St. Alphonsus, St. Francis of Sales, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa, St. Philip Neri, uh, Lorenzo Scubli and so on. But that spirituality is more evident in the older form of the Mass. It's not impossible to, to, to draw that from the newer form of the Mass. But I think the older form of the Mass helps priests to rediscover that spirituality of the priesthood. Yeah, this has been an observation that I've also uh, made myself. It's interesting what happens to uh, young guys who, as you say, never knew the older form. Uh, but as they learn how to say the older Mass uh, f for the first time, they, it changes something in them. They begin to discover new things about who they are as a priest at the altar, and then therefore who they are uh, interiorly and then for the people as well. There's something about it that that changes their perspective. Yes, indeed. I think one of the most important things is that the priest is reminded of his own unworthiness and his sinfulness. I think that's the most important thing about the private prayers of the old mass. People don't hear them, the people in the congregation, you know, they might read them in the book, but they don't hear them said aloud by the priest. They're private prayers, they're said silently. But yeah, that's, that's true, you know, in the, in the Novus Ordo, in those, in those prayers, for example, um, before, uh, before the priest's own communion, uh, and then again, uh, at the very end of Mass, before the blessing, the, the priest refers to himself as indignus, you know, unworthy. And there's a sense in which that was removed uh, from the newer form of Mass. And then when you couple that with the way that the newer form of Mass is often celebrated, that is, uh, versus populum, where the priest becomes very much the center of attention, where he's making eye contact, where perhaps mm -hmm. psychologically he's tempted to place himself at the center of the action. Um, you know, there, there's a there is a different spiritual vector there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a great damage to the to the priesthood. The priest should become the centre of attention, and this is one of the crucial aspects of facing the people. The priest can face the people if he has a crucifix in the centre of the altar, as Pope Benedict does, and the candlesticks there, shielding him and providing a focus of attention. 
if the priest is facing the people as the entertainer, as the leader, as the presider, then it's very easy for the priest to become the focus of attention. And that can be very damaging for both the priest and the people. I was explaining to my own people the other day, it's fine if the priest stands up and says, well, good morning, everybody, how are you? It's lovely to see you today. That's fine if the people like the priest. And then he can tell a few jokes and they can laugh and think he's a great guy. But supposing they don't like the priest, for one reason or another, you know, they don't take to him or they don't feel he's a, he's a nice guy. Well, in that case, all his jokes, all his personal intrusions on the mass are going to be an obstacle. And I think this is particularly true for men. Cardinal Heenan observed this in, in 1967. Now, if on the other hand, the priest is facing towards the east, his own intrusion is limited to the sermon. People can switch off. As I, I joke to my people, you know, when I was talking to them, they could even go out and have a smoke during the sermon, you know, go outside the church and do something else. <laughs> they wouldn't miss Mass. But if they came back into the Mass, the priest was facing towards the east, they would be attending Mass. The priest wouldn't matter a whit. It wouldn't matter who the priest was, whether they liked him, whether they didn't like him, there was mass going on. I think that's the thing we need to recover, to get away from the personality of the priest. You know, Hello, good morning, how are you? The sort of Terry Wogan, the English um, radio commentator, model for celebrating the mass, to get away from all that. So that the priest is simply, and what could be greater than this, in persona Christi. Yes, Alter Christus, in persona Christi. Alter Christus. But the priest is simply there to represent Christ, to be there in his sacramental character, to offer the sacrifice. Then it doesn't matter whether you like him or not, you can go to Mass, you can gain all the fruits of the Mass, subjective and objective, without the obstacle of the priest. Now, uh, let me let me just connect a couple things we've talked about here so far. You've talked about the how younger people like this, uh, how younger people with families, uh, with children are around, and at the same time, it sounds like you are doing a, a uh, making an effort to do some catechesis of your people in the parish. Have you also um, begun presenting? the older form of mass teaching it to young people and i don't mean just altar boys you know but maybe uh children oh, yes. in the parish yes it, while i was in lourdes it was almost by accident that some of the young families came along to a a, a low right old mass celebrated by a friend of mine and we weren't expecting them to come so i said to my friend well look do you mind if i do some kind of cases during the mass and of course he was fine about that and it was a wonderful opportunity because the Mass was only half an hour long. So for the young children, it wasn't too long. I could kneel down with the children, make the act of contrition with them at the prayers at the foot of the altar, talk to them a little about the Gospel and so on, talk to them about adoring Christ, offering themselves with Christ. And I, I'm very keen to do this in my parish as well because the children's Mass in the new rite, you know, that there's an opportunity to do various things with children in the new rite and have them sing songs and so on. I think there's also a great opportunity to do that in the old rite. And I'd very much like to introduce young people to that. I find in my parish that the the people who are opposed, you know, very anti the old rite are not the young families. It tends to be older people. The younger families just need to be introduced to it and to be shown that, yes, you can bring your children to this. It's fine. It, it doesn't matter too much if they make a bit of a noise or you've got a young baby who's crying. That doesn't matter. And we can teach your children how to attend Mass, how to make an act of contrition at the beginning of Mass, how to listen to our Lord during the readings, how to adore Christ and to associate ourselves with the Passion during the canon of the Mass, how to prepare for Holy Communion. You know, if, they, if they've not made their First Communion, to look forward to their First Communion. If they've made their Communion, they're going to be receiving Communion at the Mass, to, you know, to, to receive Communion reverently, 
and then to make a good thanksgiving after after communion all those things we can do i think actually more easily with the old mass and many people would want to say well we can only do this by having guitar songs and by having children running up and doing readings at the lectern i think that there are many ways in which we can involve children in the mass spiritually and prayerfully without having any of those external activities that have seemed to be so essential yeah you know it, it seems to me that there's a different dynamic involved when you have uh, children and, and everybody basically um, participating in an active form of participation which is more aligned with interior receptivity than it is with you know necessarily and maybe first and foremost or as a matter of logical priority outward outward participation maybe for children i wonder if there couldn't be a, a distinction here between something which is play and something which is uh, you know a very solemn moment because children have an ability to be terribly solemn don't they absolutely i, I have um, a nephew who's um, a down syndrome lad and he, he goes to mass at the birmingham oratory and he loves the latin mass it's something which appeals to him. He can he can feel and sense the solemnity of it, even though, in terms of intelligence, well, he he can't read too well. He can read a little bit. He can't write too well. He can write a little bit, but he can feel and understand the solemnity of the mass. There, it's not a question of following every word or reading a book or whatever. It's a question of understanding that this is something sacred that's going on here. And everybody can understand that, whether they can read or write or not. And little children can understand that. They can respond to it. They can they can rejoice in it. Whereas if we if we try to reduce everything to to words and to a book, you have a set of words read over the heads of people, which actually in the end they don't understand. Yeah, there's there's an interesting connection here with what's going on also with liturgical translation, right, from Latin into English. Uh, you know, if you if if the translators uh, insist, as you know, in the old theory of translation, of dumbing down certain words which they perceive to be too hard, yeah, it gives people over a, over a, a period of time the idea that what's going on here isn't terribly important. But if the language is a little difficult, even if it is Latin and they don't understand necessarily every word, they do understand that what is going on is terribly important. Absolutely. Well, everybody understands certain words in Hebrew. Everybody knows there's the word Alleluia, Amen, Hosanna. Not everybody knows what the word Hosanna means, but they know it's something special. Many people could understand that when the priest turns around and says, Dominus Vobiscum, that means the Lord be with you. Please God, in a few years, they'll be able to reply, if they reply in English, and with your spirit, rather than, and also with you, which is a very impoverished sort of reply. People understand that there's something sacred going on. They, they use different sorts of language in all sorts of ways in everyday life. And the idea that the liturgical language should be reduced to some kind of everyday argot is a, is a crass idea. And we can see that in England we have the Jerusalem Bible, which still refers to disabled people as cripples. And we have in the Gospel every now and again our Lord referring to cripples. Now that's an appalling phrase. You'd never use that in ordinary language in England today, and yet it's used in the liturgy because this particular attempt to provide contemporary English has been stuck in a, a time warp in the late 1960s. So the, the idea of English being a language of the people is never going to work, never going to work. Uh, would you advocate then a, 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 perhaps a greater use of Latin rather than English in the future? Absolutely. I think that people can always follow if they're, if they're intelligent enough to follow a, a bilingual missile, then they can follow the text in the Latin and the English. 
If they find that difficult, well, they would probably find it difficult to follow the text in the English anyway. And so such people, as has happened for the entire history of the Church, could meditate on the mysteries of Christ, mysteries of, Rose, of the Rosary, mysteries which are shown in the statues and the stained glass windows of the Church. That's not a lesser form of prayer. And many of those people will be praying more deeply than people who maybe feel that they're very intellectual and they can follow every word. That doesn't make you a better man of prayer. It, it means that you can follow some of the texts, but the key to participation in the liturgy is to follow the prayers of the Mass, to pray as the priest is saying Mass. To, to unite yourself interiorly with the content of the prayer as it's being spoken. You know, the, the true yeah. actor in Holy Mass is Christ. And Christ is speaking in the words. And so when, as a baptized person, member of, of Christ's mystical person, when you strive to unite your heart, mind, and will to the content of the prayers, you are participating in your own form of participation uh, in, in what Christ is doing in Mass. Absolutely. And there was the old phrase, which is sometimes used to confuse people, to say, we mustn't pray at the Mass, we must pray the Mass. Well, if somebody is praying by looking at the words and following every, every word in the book, there's a danger that they could be praying at the Mass. Whereas somebody who's quietly and devoutly saying the Rosary, I don't say that's necessarily the best way to participate in Mass, but it's one way. But somebody who's quietly and and devoutly participating by meditating on the mysteries of Christ is certainly praying the Mass because the mysteries of Christ are made present in the Mass and that person who's meditating on the mysteries of Christ is praying the Mass and we must never despise that it seems to me yeah that's right you know there are people for example who uh, because perhaps of the burden of years or, or an injury or or a malady of some sort, um, can't see very well, hear very well, maybe they can't stand up or sit down, maybe all they can do is just basically sit there and be there and not follow along in the book or anything, but yet they know why they're there, they know what is happening, and they truly long with all their heart to to be a part of it. They may not necessarily have to be following along, just as we would, you know, follow in a libretto at an, op at an opera, but uh, they're participating in a very deep way. Well, that's certainly true. Also, with people who can't read, we mustn't ever forget that there are some people in our parishes who can't read whose literacy is maybe a little limited. You know, now that you bring that up, it, it reminds me of something that I experienced many years ago. I was in Portugal, um, in the in the mountains near near Braga. You know where they have the famous oh, yeah. Braga, right? And I was um, I was visiting a, a group there, a religious group, and um, on on Sunday, there came down from the hills and uh, a genuine shepherd i mean this is a guy who basically lived out in the fields with the flocks and it was something out of another century this guy he was just amazing and he was clearly not a, a learned man he probably never never been through the door of a school in his life but i remember watching him uh participate in in mass his sense of absolute awe and uh, the way that he the way that he very carefully came into the church almost like uh, you would imagine you know Moses to have been putting off his shoes off of his feet before he went into a sacred space he 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 slid around the doorpost into the corner and looked at everything with with great Reverence and followed everything with a, a meticulous uh, uh, and attentive care. It was it was just an amazing thing. It was an object lesson. Yes, absolutely. And there are many of our people who do that, and they're not necessarily capable of participating in the mass in terms of reading a book.
following the bilingual missal, but they are capable of following the mysteries of the Mass. Yeah, you don't have to be a scholar. You just have to really want to be there. If people can look on the, on the sacred host and bow their, bow their heads in reverence, that this is my Lord and my God, and they know, and they understand that this is the sacrifice of Christ that's made present, and that's participation in the Mass. Yeah, no, Father, I appreciate very much your 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 time. Uh, thanks for for talking so long with me. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to do this again. Um, I'll come oh, up indeed. with a new set of questions, and we can we can have you uh, on the uh, one of these podcasts again. Thank you so much, Father <laughs> Timothy Finnegan, pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary in Blackfen, south of London. His hermeneuticalness, as we call him. Uh, the, Thank you very much. Good with to be with you. Log the hermeneutic of continuity. Thanks a lot, Father Finnegan. That's all we have time for today, folks. Visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? You can just do a Google search on Father Z, Father Z, and you'll find her right away. Please feel free also to use the donation button on the left sidebar of the blog and also on the podcast entries. And uh, you can leave me voicemail. In the United States, you can call 651-314-4554. And in the UK, 020-8123-1545-1545. This is Father John Zolsdorf, Father Z. Till next time, please pray for me as I will for you.